0: Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are talking about the singular experience that is Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself, which is currently streaming on Hulu. My name is Matt. I am not the Rulatista, Adam. I am the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas.
1: And I'm Adam. I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification
0: by Faith, we're going to talk about how in and of itself helps us think about life in the church and in the world.
1: In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how in and of itself might help us understand the lectionary passages for the fifth week in Lent, which is March 21st. And then finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following.
0: Before we get too far down the road, though, I want to introduce our guest, reintroduce our guest and friend of the show, Tim Hughes-Williams. Tim is the pastor of Light Street Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland, and the person we call when we want to talk about magic or TV specials, and in and of itself is kind of both. So, Tim, thanks for being here.
2: Oh, I am happy to be here, and listen, am going to be typecast? Let it be for the dorkiest of interests, um, magic shows.
0: <laughs> so... If you know this show already, then it needs no introduction. And if you don't know this show in and of itself, no introduction is going to make any kind of sense to you. Derek Delgadio is a magician and a performance artist who conceived of a stage show called In and of Itself, which ran for a few years, both in LA and off Broadway. I had heard buzz about it. I tried to get tickets to it, this thing to last time I was in New York, which feels like a different world from now, but tickets were not to be had. Fortunately, before COVID shut everything down, Stephen Colbert saw this show and believed in it and helped produce this filmed version, which is directed by Frank Oz and is on Hulu right now. You should go watch it if you haven't. And really, if you haven't, you should go watch it before you listen to us talk about it at all, because everything from this point forward is spoilers. What unfolds after the spoilers is a show that is part magic tricks and part long-form storytelling and part interactive exhibit and honestly not that far away from being a kind of worship service all around themes of identity and the labels we put on ourselves and the labels we put on those around us and the complicated impossible dance of being known. If I sound a little high right now go watch the show and it'll make more sense. If I don't stick around let's talk about it. Tim, I want to hear you talk about this too. What was it like for you to spend this time with Delgadio, and how did in and of itself make you reflect on your own ministry?
2: I am curious if you guys had the same experience that I did, which was discovering that my emotional guards came down sooner than I thought they were going to when I was mm-hmm. watching this. Uh, and it made me realize that maybe the biggest magic trick here is that <laughs> most of uh, Delgadio's intentions have nothing to do with the tricks he's performing, um, but the tricks themselves are sort of the, the misdirect you know, for what I think is the real agenda, you know, when David Copperfield is like waving these huge scarfs around and has a live duck on stage, it's because he doesn't want you to pay attention to what he's really doing. Whereas I feel like Delgadio is doing the opposite thing, which is like using a magic trick to distract you from how he's cracking your impenetrable heart open so that he can touch all your feelings at the same time. Um, And I found myself getting really nervous around this show because indirectly it was touching on a lot of some of maybe my own issues with being a a pastor um which i think is really interesting and i but i am a little nervous about having this conversation in public because i think maybe thinking about the artifice and authenticity of magic they're like the parallels to religion are just a little bit too real for me uh but the one i guess the one thing i want to highlight just because i've thought about it a lot is the symbol of the log book from the from the from the boat which comes early in the show before all of the sort of Before the most spectacular magic happens, there is this book that is that members of the audience record things in every every episode. And he talks about the way in which um, sailors sometimes can see the stars and sometimes they can't. And so they record where they are and they also record where they think they are. And the composite of that, what he calls truth, both real and imagined, becomes essential for navigation. Uh, and I was like, man, that is an amazing metaphor for the Bible. <laughs> and yes, it's an amazing, totally. You know, just, a, just a community document that we are that, that we believe is a truth speaking document that has many voices in it. And sometimes seems off base and sometimes seems accurate. But yet in the composite continues to reveal truth. I just thought that was the most amazing. And it doesn't even seem like it was high on his list of, of agenda. Uh, like to make that point explicitly. It was just sort of floating there. Um, and I think that's fascinating when I think about what we're trying to do with ritual. I mean, ritual is just like a way of involving structural, it's like a structural way to expose people to to transcendence, and that to me is kind of the function that that book was playing uh, in the show.
0: Yeah, that book is an amazing sequence. I mean, he, he's, he appoints someone who is going to come back tomorrow and then be the caretaker of that book overnight to write their own entry into it and bring it back the next day. I've now watched this twice. The second time I watched it, I totally believed him when he says, this is the scariest part of the show to me. Mm -hmm. Did, Did, you know, the person who was here yesterday, did you bring the book back? Um, which seems like a legitimate moment of suspense for him. Cause if not, then like, what do you do? Uh, but I, I did. I found that moment really profound, and it's also sort of a. It's an early hint in the show that like not all the magic is magic, right? Like like there's nothing magical about this community book project. It's just that people believe that they're under the they're they're still under the spell of something, anyways. And, well, and, and that,
1: it, I, yeah, yeah, that's the important part, right? It's the the first story that frames the whole show is this Rolatista story about someone who puts themselves in incredible life-altering risk and that ultimately becomes their identity, right? And, and then that's uh, the doorway to open, t- to talk about how, how we receive identities, how we absorb identities, how we embrace them or how we try and reject them. Um, and at the heart of it is that there's this risk with the Rolatista every time that he's gonna pull this trigger. And each of these little moments, I mean, the, the, the way that the, sta- this, the art direction and the stage setup of this is brilliant in and of itself in the way that like it, the, the, the moves of the show are shaped as, a, as, a, as the chamber of a, of a gun pistol. And each one of them has a different set of risks, whether it's him telling his own story and divulging very personal and hard secrets about his own life. Whether it's this moment of this book, where he's like, "If this book does not come back, major parts of this show at the end don't make any sense," <laughs> um, and I don't have the book to give to the next person, <laughs> so that they can go on. Like, and so each one involves this moment of risk, and so thematically it fits with the rest of the the, the show. And I, I mean, I it's it's a really tight performance right like every it's, it's intricate in its own way but everything fits together really well when you start to step back and i think it has to because part of the function of the book is to have people imagine what the end is going to be right and so they have to have some confidence that the end has to do with the previous portions of the story of, of the show itself um and that confidence comes from both his performance, but also from just an, an understanding that they, they believe him, right? I, 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 like you, Tim, I think I found a moment. I, I was like, I, at first I was sort of, I was taken aback by the pace of his talking, which is very deliberate and very slow, which is very different than your typical magician who's, whose patter is designed to sort of snap mm-hmm. and move quickly. And it's not that at all. And then I started to fear for like people in the audience who were going to be asked to be vulnerable. And I didn't know if I trusted him enough to create a safe space for people to be vulnerable. And then like you, I slowly started finding myself vulnerable in the midst (laughs) of this moment and being terrified of it. But then finally with as it moves towards this sort of moment of climax of, of, of consideration about the labels that, that we have, that have been thrust upon us, and then the value of the labels that we have absorbed ourselves or chosen. Like those, like I, I was deeply moved by the end of it. Um, yeah, so I mean, so as you watched it, Tim, deception is like a central part of, of magic right? The whole part, the whole point is deception. You you come to be deceived. But like you said at the very beginning, like the deception here is designed to unearth the real or the honest. And by the end, like, what were you, what were you reflecting on? Not like specifically in your own life, but like, how, how do, how do these, moments of deception actually unearth how did that i mean that's the magic trick like how did it how did he do it
2: yeah and is it is it even ethical like i i was like (laughs) a little i was a little uncomfortable with the emotional manipulation in the show uh i think i come out on the side of it being okay because of the fact that it was so transparent and because it was so well intentioned uh but uh it does make me nervous i mean There is, there is an interesting evolution in the sort of the role of the magician, you know, like if the David Copperfield magician, it's like, you're a showman, and in your dramatic showmanship, you're distracting the audience from what you're really doing. And then there's like the pen and Teller people who are like, magician as instructor, we're going to use like a clear device where we cut the lady in half so we can so you can see what we're doing. And we're going to explain to you how we do it. While in reality, we're doing something else you know, and whereas he seems like he's, he's like preacher magician, you know, who is like talking about your or preacher philosopher, you know, who are you? What's your identity? What's your purpose? And that's the primary vehicle for the, for maybe the distraction. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think truth was told through the artifice, which is what I think we're doing sometimes in the church. And that's, when On the days when I feel uncomfortable with what I think of as artificial in worship, um, I, I, I place my hope in the idea that we are still revealing truth, even in a worship experience that might feel artificial to the degree that I don't feel completely authentic entering into my role. Hmm. Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I was left thinking, is that I think the good news here is that um, not everything that is done has to be strictly true in order for the capital T truth to still be told in in the space.
0: I wanna circle back to how how we answered that question in the context of, of ministry and liturgy. I, I, it was particularly resonant for me after a year of doing Zoom worship, where I feel like in some ways there's more, at least for us, there's sort of more sleight of hand involved um, and, and more kind of logic of TV production happening that, um, feels more artificial i feel the artifice more in liturgy now but but i'm curious what truth you see revealed in this show if the artifice is being used to reveal a truth what what is that what got what what is getting
1: unearthed well there there are a couple of different points um first is is how how do we construct identity like who's responsible for the construction of identity and to use a word that you used earlier tim like how does how does authenticity work within that framework within that construction and what was really interesting to me about the various different movements of the show is that in some ways the labels and the identities that are thrust upon us that are given to us without choice um can be completely damaging that they can be a source of tremendous shame but through attention and um, and some degree of honesty, we can redeem them. Like we can re-own them to some great um, new construction of identity. Like I, I found it all very malleable, and that I think, like at the end of the day, you get to what you get to choose to be is a remarkable thing. But the stuff that was chosen for you might also have some generative possibilities for your life. And that's that's in that's different than I think the typical understanding of identity, which is like people are trying to label you, those labels are bad, or we need to free ourselves of all labels whatsoever, because those labels are constricting and they are the and they're antithetical to the ideas of freedom. Um And he's saying, I wouldn't go that far. We have, these labels can actually be quite good for us, source of pride. Um, And I think that's what the climax of the show shows us. But also watching someone work out the renegotiation of those labels, whether it's the um, Rolatista, whether it's this brick, whether it's this, um, this vision of this book, like the thing that you look at is not, ultimately, it doesn't have to stay the same. And this is a very like common performance art idea, right? Um, I, so there's, if you'll permit me, there's a really famous performance artist from Italy named Alighieri E. Boetti. Like he, he added and to his name. So it's sure. like Adam <clears throat> and Hurlson, like he's a, he's a weirdo, but he, because he wanted to talk about the ways in which like, we're not singular, we're actually made up of a lot of different parts and his most famous piece is this book that he made which is called the classification of the world of of a thousand of the world's longest rivers where he goes into very minute details about how to measure a river knowing that measuring a river is actually an impossible task because rivers don't stay stagnant right they're 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 growing depending on like the length grows depending on how much rain there is and so you might think that the amazon is the the longest river in the world, but what a, the difference between like 755 and 756 with respect to rivers is impossible to distinguish. And so he sets to himself like this this task of trying to classify things, knowing that his classifications are total BS, that they don't actually work. And I found something, I found a common idea in, uh, in DelGadio's work, right? Which is like these classifications, they might be helpful, but they don't, they're not helpful forever. They don't always work. Just
2: to be clear, um, I can never be friends with Adam and Harrelson.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it is, it's totally pretentious. It is, it is like very <laughs> 1960s performance artists, European performance artist. But I think that there is something that- <laughs> For sure. For from sure. a theoretical standpoint.
0: <laughs> I would consider befriending Adam E. Harrelson if I think something <laughs> about putting it using the foreign language m- yeah, makes it that's right, it lives into it a little bit. You may steer into like that maybe, skate.
2: yeah, maybe Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, actually, I always I knew, really knew that that, like, that
0: kids' pizza joint was really there to exp-
2: explore the yeah, multiplicity of all things before, before their times. Um, I, I really. I appreciate what you said about like the the usefulness and limo- limited usefulness of labels. Uh, and I think when I think about what's the what's the what's being revealed at the end, it is the idea that you are both known in a way that you can control, and you are also larger than that knowing in a way that inspires wonder. You know, like um, it's really powerful to be seen and recognized and have your identity r- affirmed. And then even just in the magic of how that happens, it's a reminder that there is a bigger world than that. And that you, even at that moment, you're not trapped in that in that label, which is where I think the um, the queer plotline subplot of this is not just incidental, you know, like, and I, I'm just amazed at how the show works so well. It just works so well, like on so many different levels, and it doesn't resolve it in a tidy way. But like, um, you know, so much, of the, so much of the interior conversation in the LGBTQ community is like, why are we using these labels that are used to oppress us? And the answer is because they're still politically necessary and because they are still almost like, they're necessary as, as a part of your evolution of, of understanding. You know, you need those, you need those concepts even if you're gonna deconstruct them again later. And I, I feel like um, that's something of what's happening at the end when he says, you are both you are both these things and also you are more than them. You are the things that people cannot see as much as you are the things that people can.
1: Which is a deeply theological idea. I mean, if we're going to talk about God, like maybe we should add that to our liturgies a bit more.
0: So let's talk about this with liturgy, because I I, I felt the the I felt the conversation there very, very powerfully as someone who spends now considerably more of my week prepping for Zoom worship than I had to for in-person worship because Zoom worship particularly is, I, I feel the artifice of it more drastically. We have to think through where cameras are going to be. People liturgists are in many different spaces, they have to think about what their backgrounds are going to be. We have to think about the pacing of cuts from one person to the other are we going to put up slides during this hymn? Are we putting a video package here? It is considerably, I'm I'm aware of the manipulation involved in putting that service together, which is not to say that in-person worship doesn't also have that level of manipulation. It's been done with architecture and with design in the space, but we don't, don't necessarily think about it in the same way, planning those services. So I'm curious how this piece summoned up for you all that the sort of inherent artifice of of worship, and and of, and as people who build liturgy and lead congregations in worship, how much of it feels like sleight of hand?
2: What makes it authentic is the is that is that the well, I don't in in our we do a we do a um, a synchronous worship service live on Zoom. And no matter how premeditated it is, it's only going to happen once, you know, and um, what happens in that room still surprises me. And even my own emotional response to my sermon, you know, sometimes I'm much more emotionally engaged to my sermon when I write it and I feel detached from it when I am reading it. And other times I feel the opposite. And I just feel like I, you, can't, you can't predict what's going to happen and nor can you predict how people are going to respond to it. Uh, And that's a humility that I think leaves room for the idea that God is doing something. Um, And I think the artifice is also real, but maybe it can be used responsibly. You know, like Derek Delgadio was literally a thief. Like he was, he was a card cheat. He stole people's money with his magic. That was his profession. Uh, And he's not, He's not not doing that anymore. (laughs) He's just doing it um, in a much more productive and healthy way, you know, and like that idea that the wolf part of becoming the wolf is making your manipulation so subtle that people don't know that they're in the presence of a wolf. That's a terrifying thought. But it's also what he is doing in the show. Right. Um, And so I think that anybody should be uncomfortable with that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not part of how the sausage gets made. And I I don't know how to fully square all that.
1: Or, But it's a a part of us, right? I think like pretending that the wolf is not there and that we're just dogs, the lap dogs. So the the wolf dog dichotomy is really important, but it's, I think he's recognizing that it's to hate the wolf, to dismiss the wolf inside of us, it doesn't work either. I mean, this is this is yeah. I, have, I have a very clear memory of a <laughs> big in seminary and deborah hunsinger pulling out puppets to like tell me about my life and me being so mad at how silly this was like, how how ridiculous that you would use these puppets to try and tell me about human experience and then she starts talking in the with these puppets, a giraffe and a jackal, which is just another word for like wolf and dog, right? The giraffe and the jackal and the giraffe says all of the good things about your life, about who you are. And the jackal says all the terrible things about who you are. And I looked at her and I said, Dr. Hunsaker, I hate that jackal. freaking hate it. And she goes, no. And she got like, she like was overwhelmed by this comment. And she said, Adam, you... You have to learn to love the jackal. And and I like left that like I left the class in a daze remembering that, just kind of walking around being like, How how in the world do you do such a thing? Like, can you find a productive outlet for the wolf? Can it can it find a place like you said, Tim, like to to positive generativity that that like you don't ever get rid of it? And maybe that's not the point. The point is to try and direct it. And I think like I feel that a lot because I have my own ambitions that I think are selfish. I have my own needs that I'm constantly bidding the congregation to give me. I I have all of these things and I don't, I don't think they're going away. I've been at this for quite a long time and they don't feel like, like that impulse is any less um, strong. It's so trying to commit, energy and time to try and doing that to do that in a productive way seems seems like the call of ministry
2: yeah i mean it's the shadow right you don't eliminate the shadow you uh, you recognize the shadow
1: yeah yeah and and admit it right like i don't try and hide the shadow or pretend like the shadow is not there there's a there's a measure of vulnerability where i can talk about myself hopefully honestly with to, to an extent with the congregation about the needs that I have, the insecurities that I might possess. I, I had a conversation with a congregate the other day and in the middle of it I just like realized how needy I was being and I was just like, oh and I, I just decided at that moment like I'm just gonna apologize and say I'm sorry, I'm feeling super insecure right now <laughs> And I just think that that like I don't know if I would have done that five 10 years ago i I think in some ways the pandemic has helped because it's just it's less shameful to say that you feel insecure nowadays but um i don't know i i I feel like the this show is trying to get you to be more gracious to all parts of yourself is that right i mean even the part when someone looks at you and says like you're the role right like Who's not, a, who's not a romantic or sympathetic figure, at least as it's told at the beginning.
2: No, not at all. Um, I feel like improv is a good a good metaphor here because improv mm. is practiced. It's a practiced skill. And uh, the more you practice, the better you are at it. And that's a kind of preparation, which I guess you could call in inauthenticity. But it really creates a space for something authentic to happen. And to me, that's the hope is that like, your preparation is nothing but laying good groundwork for for the truly authentic and spontaneous thing. And, and I, I think that's what worship preparation should be. And we know when we've gone too far. Hmm. And yeah. I, I'm struck by how in the, in the magic show, like he's, he's left a couple of places where without authentic audience participation, the show won't work. You know, like the, the end of the sequence only works because people made an honest choice at some point earlier in the, in the show.
0: And decided, and to, stand and decided you know, to stand up. And decided to stand up. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I think the emotional resonance you feel, it comes from that mutual participation. That, and that's really important.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right to point out that like the, the liturgy needs, our, our, our liturgy, our live liturgy needs room for spontaneity. It allows room for God to show up. I it, it, There's something both rehearsed and live and unknown about it that is, that is really critical. I mean, I think th- to be honest, that's probably true for Deborah Hunsinger's pastoral care class too, right? Like yeah. she's she's gonna figure out a way to tell someone every year that they gotta love their jackal. <laughs> like that, that line is critical it's for just the person me. who he hears it and everybody else in the room. And maybe you get to that point a little differently, but every year someone's gonna raise their hand and ask the question that allows her to say, no, you gotta love your jackal because that's part of the expectation for the class. Um, I, I I think, and then I also kind of tem them with you that like, Derek's show. I mean, in and of itself, is is much more tightly scripted. I mean, there yes, there are some places where we need the audience to do some stuff, but it has a lot less room for variants in it i mean he's run this thing hundreds of times and the 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 central beats are highly anticipated and highly produced i got to the end especially the second time on viewing it i i i wasn't quite as probed by the end as i had been the first time and it wasn't just having spent 90 minutes watching through the artifice of it that that was certainly part of it but it was to, to me, on a second viewing, the metaphor that lingered the most heavily was about the blind men trying to describe the elephant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, felt like the thesis statement for the show, that you are this, and and he, he gives you the warning that later on in the show, you're going to see a full-grown elephant standing on stage, right, which part of the audience is thinking, like, wait, there's really going to be an elephant? And no, it's just him. He's, he's the full-grown elephant. And... All we're doing is grasping at pieces of it, trying to figure out what the full picture is, which is kind of unknowable. You get to this ending sequence where folks are being told the labels that they chose for themselves. And it's very awe inspiring that he's able to do this. But I also think once you go. 15, 20, 30 people into that routine, people are still waiting on, waited with with bated breath on being told their label, even though of course he's gonna know it by now, he's gotten the first 20 of them right, it's not magic anymore. Now there's something powerful just in the artifice of being told something about yourself, even if it's not entirely true. Like we know it's not entirely true, it's not the whole elephant, it's just this one little sliver and you know what it says but still the power of hearing somebody else say it to you and people are just breaking
1: it's it's really it really i mean they're breaking like the richest person in the world is breaking right like bill gates is sitting there and he has to wait like every i mean there's some there's something mo- like deeply moving about yeah. that that like the, the 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 different sets of experiences there Still have this core desire to be known. Um, So I, I, but I, I want to hear from both of you. Like, okay, there there are six six moves in the show, right? Six six illusions, yeah. Tricks. Which one did you did did you appreciate the most?
2: I think I guess it was the letters. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the letters. Because that was the most, that felt the most impossible, you know, and it was not anything I had ever seen before, Mm -hmm. you know, like making things disappear and reappear is, is, is like standard practice magic. (laughs) Um, But like uh, producing a intimate personal letter (laughs) from, from a person's life uh, in a manner that seems to be random, but is, 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 is. I felt a sense of, I felt like unnerved watching that in a way that I don't usually when I'm watching Magic.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely that sequence for me too. I mean, that, I think that letter sequence, and, and partly for the how the heck did he do it of it, which which still lingers with me, and that is two viewings in the one that I have the least confidence of having any clue of, of how they pulled that off. But also just, it is... Watching the reaction on people's faces is just incredibly human. It's incredibly powerful. Um, the the woman who looks up at him and with tears in her eyes and just says, "I, I don't understand." I mean, that beat just breaks me. And I, I yeah. So for me, that is the. I mean, I know the ending sequence is sort of the most famous piece in the show, and you know, obviously they linger on it for a long time. And Frank Oz is cutting back and forth between lots of different screenings, lots of different performances of the show so that he can pull in famous figures like Bill Gates and all sorts of other folks. And it goes for a while. They clearly understand the climax. But for me, the letters is the um, the most poignant piece. What about
1: for you, Adam? I love card magic, man. I, I Just watching someone who obviously has practiced a craft I just the I, I never get tired of the of a of a sleight of hand trick because it's 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 one person like I can conceive how the letters got done as an illusion but it requires a lot of infrastructure right yeah, yeah it requires yeah. other people yeah to participate in this in a variety of different ways a human being with their with their sleeves rolled up and a pack of cards in their hand like I don't know that just it feels so and to look and to like pay attention and to be like I still don't see it. That has intrigued me since I was a small child, and I still don't get tired of it. I love it. It's just brilliant, and I I, I don't have good articulation of why that's so important to me. But, um, you know, I think what one of the parents of this show is Ricky Jay. I don't know if you've spent any time with Ricky Jay's magic. He's, but I. I remember being about like in middle school, and we um, we had HBO and Ricky Jay and his fifty two assistants was the HBO special that he put on, and I must have watched it a hundred times. And <laughs> and it it overlaps so much. I mean, he says it like he talks about his fifty two assistants, and he says that they're they are um, brazen and belligerent one of some of them are even suicidal like you and me which feels very much of a piece with this show and it's question about like this this um some of its themes too so Mm -hmm. i yeah. yeah
0: So let's keep talking about this, but pivot towards scripture. And before we do that, I want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. The Century has launched a new podcast, Contemplating Now, hosted by Cassidy Hall. It's a podcast that holds discussions at the intersection of contemplative practice and social justice. Adam has listened to the first couple. What did you think, buddy?
1: Uh, I really like them. Um, Super deep, engaging, really thoughtful discussions. Yeah, I commend them to you. Excellent. Well,
0: if y'all are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more, visit ChristianCentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's talk about preaching. Texts for this upcoming lectionary Sunday are from year B, March 21st. We've got a text from Jeremiah where God will write the law and the covenant upon the heart. We have the author of Hebrews comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. And we've got Jesus predicting his own death in John's gospel. So, Adam, as you look at these texts for this coming Sunday, what do you see? What resonates for you after your viewing of In and of Itself?
1: So I I want to just talk briefly about the John passage and its themes around death, specifically John's um, discussions of it, which are different than the synoptics, I think. I think to understand what Delgadio is doing is not to just to recognize him as an illusionist or mentalist or born of the world of magic, but also a performance art. I think that's a major part of his background. Some of the other stuff that he's done in his career is also um, engaged around that as part of a performance art duo. Um, and performance art is always in in conversation with a lot of philosophy, critical theory, different things like this, and um, and it's really hard to talk about sort of twentieth century, twenty first century understandings of of life, existence, and being without considering like how death focuses into that, and you know, in and of itself, frames its stories as um, begins this story as this person who. Is constantly coming close to death. Um, doesn't ultimately until this other moment, um, where the person who thinks that they have they have cheated death, the um, the rolatista, finally after um, after cheating death over and over and over again. You know this this robber is in his house and and points a gun at him and he says, "Don't you know who I am?" Like that is, "Don't you know that death can't touch me?" and the person fires a gun and he dies and what i think makes jesus's speech here so interesting is that there is no understanding at least in jesus's ministry that death is not part of the equation that it is a central part of the equation that is the thing by which life will come to grow and be and that as much as the 20th 20th century philosophy wants to call us like beings unto death, that the answer of Christ is that yes, beings unto death, but through death comes this version of life, which is one of the central paradoxes. And in many ways is the final trick um, reveal of Christ. And so, I, I mean, I would, I would consider like these images that Jesus continues to talk about, the seed that falls to the ground and that it must be crushed in order that it grow, like that, that Jesus has a very complicated vision of what death does and um, allows to be done in our world. And from a preaching standpoint, I think Delgadio is doing something similar. What about you guys? I'm
0: thinking about this Jeremiah passage I love this Jeremiah passage. I love I love Jeremiah, and I love this new covenant language, <clears throat> where the the promise is that the the old covenant was subject to being carved on a rock, right? the the old The old covenant was was carved on stone, and people could forget what was there because they had to go read it, um, and they had to obey it. It was outside of them. It was something that was outside of them that they could be bad at. The new covenant, Jeremiah says, well, or God says to Jeremiah, it turns out that like putting covenants outside of people is not a good long-term strategy because they're so forgetful and they don't do it. So I'm going to put the covenant inside them. We're going to write it on their hearts um, so that they can't help but obey and be in that faithful relationship. And, but I got to say in the wake of, Delgadio. in and of itself, I find myself a little more pessimistic about this passage mm-hmm. uh, than, than I would have been going in. Because I, I feel like one of the things this show is trying to suggest is that we are very, um, we are not reliable carriers of our own identities. Uh, we, in fact, need to be told over and over again who we are, even if it's imperfect. Um, That Bill Gates knows he's a leader. Like there's not a world, I can't accept a world where Bill Gates doesn't wake up in the morning and know he's a leader. And yet there's something really powerful and cathartic for him, you can see it on his eyes of being, of having that word spoken to him. So Bill Gates has got that carved in his heart, but it's not, still not working fully there's still something powerful about him it being affirmed for him and i I think about that liturgically for us it seems like part of the function of worship is for the us to gather together and hear someone else say that we are children of god and that even with this promise theoretically carved into our hearts it still kind of leaks out the back you know
1: it needs (laughs) affirmation, yeah
0: it needs to be said by someone else over and over again. And I think part of my job as liturgist is to stand there and tell everybody and and pull their card and say, child of God, child of God, child of God, each one of you. And, you know, to have someone say it for me too. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical on Jeremiah this morning, which is not a place i like to be usually Jeremiah, me twinsies. Um, but, uh, it makes me reflect powerfully on what that liturgical moment is. What about you, Tim?
2: I love what you just said. By the way, I feel like um, saying that your identity is somehow relational is a really is actually kind of a beautiful thought. You know, you are who you are mm. in relationship to other people. It's not just you are who you are because you announce it yourself. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think about that more. I feel like the last time you guys had me on, and please do, I'm not just in my interest in magic, you guys, my identity (laughs) is broader than that. And feel free to invite invite me on to talk about other things. Superhero movies. think I, (laughs) do not reduce me. Uh, I I think I said this before, but I have to say it again (laughs) because the John text just uh, uh, invites it, is the um, Peter Rollins book, The Divine Magician, talks about um, the magic trick of Jesus's resurrection as ritualized through the Eucharist or communion, um, which Jesus, of course, does himself, right, at the Last Supper when he says, this bread is my body. Um, but the idea that Jesus dies, and then, in, especially in the Mark telling, which we're going to get this year, disappears, right? The tomb is opened, the body is gone, nobody knows where he is. Um, and if, if Jesus is resurrected in the form of the body of Christ, the, the, the people gathered to worship, um the, so you 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 become christ and you participate in the eating of the eucharist um the sort of reveal of the body uh to me is, is a really cool way of thinking about the magic trick um hmm. and i feel like you get that explicitly in the john text with the idea of this of the the grain falling into the ground disappearing and sort of returning as the fruit um and so i love i love thinking that through and if you want to go full prestige and talk about it from a Christopher Nolan point of view, we could do that. But again, don't <laughs> reduce me to a stereotype.
0: How many other magic movies can we get? I mean, how many can we
1: just have like a,
2: a, a, I got a, a running it. series?
1: Tim, magic Mike next time. <laughs>
2: I'm not sure that's going to get me out of, my, uh, out of my niche, but sure. As, as, long as, we, as long as we don't talk about the illusionist that movie was terrible and not worth our no that movie's
1: not good no but let's watch let's go watch ricky jay and his 52 assistants
0: (laughs) i'm in for that i i I have not seen magic mike and i was not aware of how much actual stage magic would be in the show so it would be well there is a stage (laughs) right right and it's magical i guess
1: in a different sort of a different sort Sure. In, the, in a way that like Channing, only Channing Tatum can really embody.
2: I'm not going to share any thoughts on this topic with you guys in the Christian century.
0: <laughs> I think that might be our cue to wrap up this part of the conversation. Um, I'm really glad to have Tim on and look forward to having him back the next time we talk about a movie that has a magician in it. Uh, Tim, it's, it's really good to, to hear from you and thanks for joining
1: us today. My pleasure all right matt now it's time for our last segment this is called postludes it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following matt what's your postlude for the week
0: so as it is right now around the one-year anniversary of the big outbreak of covid and shutdowns it means also in austin it's the one-year anniversary of south by southwest not happening last year Uh, which was one of the leading indicators that like something had gone real wrong when they canceled South by on March 6th of 2020, about, I don't know, about a week before, 10 days before it was set to start. Normally South by Southwest takes over this city. uh, And, and Austin, people who live here have sort of a love-hate relationship with it. I mean, we love being in the place where something like that happens, but also sort of resent when it is happening because you can't get anywhere. <laughs> you, can't, you can't go downtown, you can barely move. But, but I, I admit that I sort of love it. I love the music of it, especially. I've spent some good nights uh, hanging out at, at South by shows uh, in previous years. And part of my love for it, it is filtered through um, my relationship with another podcast, which is NPR's All Songs Considered, which has been doing South by content in depth for years now. Uh, and in fact just dropped their preview episode for this year's online South by Southwest and and I recommend this episode to you um, even if you're not a all songs considered person or uh, necessarily even a a music person because it's it, it is a normal preview episode of South by where they'll pick some artists that they're excited to hear and play songs from them but it's got woven through it, this really interesting rhythm about our relationship with streaming events and the longing to be in person. What I hear through the episode is the hosts of it using some of the language that I find so familiar from a year ago now, which is, hey, isn't it great that you don't have to go all the way to Austin to see these events? (laughs) <laughs> and isn't it great that people can perform from all over the world and this can really be a global showcase that breaks down barriers because of the magic of the internet. And all this sort of language around what remote connection enabled for all kinds of communities that we started to peddle, at least I certainly started to pedal a year ago once shutdown was really in place. Uh, you can tell that they are desperately trying to convince themselves that that's true. And it, and the timing of it is such that just we're a year into this, which is um, by the time we've gotten around to doing South by again, so that they, they have to live into that language of promotion. And then every once in a while, the other truth of it comes out, which is the hosts saying, gosh, I wish we could just be there. I would really like to be at like a sweaty club in the back of a warehouse, listening to some band and someone hand me a slice of terrible pizza and just sit there and eat it. And, and you can, you can sense the, like, all the things we know we're supposed to say Mm -hmm. and the, the stuff underneath it, the longing underneath it too. And, and I heard in that, all the same rhetoric that I feel like I have used in ministry, especially in the first half of this pandemic. And in some ways I'm still using and also, and there's something about the timing of it that, it, that to be a year later and be able to reflect and hear that, hear what I said before um, and to also hear the, the, the human under it too. And this like, gosh, I really hope we're back there again in person next year. So I, I just that was a powerful episode yeah. for me, both just of the music and of the kind of humanity of it. And I I I commend it to y'all um if if that sounds intriguing in the least. What about for you? Yeah, um, I can't
1: oh I can't wait to go and check that out. I mean, I think um I miss gathering, right? And so just looking at at all the things that, that I that are that were usual gathering places with people who I didn't know. Um, but we're bound by a common interest or whether it's rooting or aesthetic was was important i mean i have heard more people in philadelphia this year talk to me so sad about the flower show mm-hmm. so the mm-hmm. philadelphia flower show is like for for people out here a very important huge um, deal yeah. right right of spring mm-hmm. it is the way that they usher spring into their lives by going to the flower show and in a very strange mix, instead of the convention center holding the flower show, it's it holds a FEMA vaccination site right now. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I get that. And and I think that there's something, at least sitting with that for a while, is is productive. Uh, the thing that I want to talk about today, I mean, so, you know, in and of itself was kind of, it felt like it was... Um, you know, manufactured in a lab for my strange obsessions, um, whether they're like, it? Whether, you did? <laughs> whether like they're like sleight of hand, which I, you know, I grew up like I got very interested in sleight of hand when I was in, in middle school and watching Ricky J mainly and reading all of his books. And then, and trying to do it myself and being very bad at it and learning how to like how to manipulate like three cards. And it's just like astounding to watch someone manipulate 52. Like it's, it, um and then the other thing is that, like in seminary i got very interested in sort of more recent contemporary performance art and uh and the, the if ricky jerry is one of the parents um marina abramovich is the other she also shows up at the end i uh, mean you know mm-hmm. he's she's the woman that he whispers to mm-hmm. it doesn't actually say out loud and she's i mean Likewise, has two very famous pieces, um, probably her two most famous pieces that have, that I think inspired this show. The first is Rhythm Zero, which involves a gun in a very, very troubling and deeply troubling way, I think offers to this show. But perhaps more importantly, is The Artist is Present, which was her, um, her piece at the Met, where she sat at a table and would stare into your eyes for however long you wanted her to. <laughs> And she would do this for 12 hours a day and she wouldn't move. Like she didn't go to the bathroom, she didn't eat, she didn't do anything. And like, if you're interested in a very good book, her autobiography, uh, Walking Through Walls is is really amazing. She's she's a very interesting person, quite extreme in a lot of ways, but there's there's a lot to learn there. The other parent that I don't think people would recognize, at least from the outset, and I don't know if he, if Del- Delgadio is aware of this, but... Robertson Davies is um, a great Canadian twentieth-century writer. Have you read any Robertson Davies? Matt. Mm-mm. Okay, he's he's amazing. He's he really is. Uh, so, um, he's so witty. He's so smart, and um, he is, I think, undervalued within the larger literary scheme and if you find someone who likes robertson davies they will almost universally love robertson davies i'm one of them and one of his most favorite trilogies is called the deptford trilogy and it is so good everyone should read it and what i think it's so interesting about it is that it is a it is a trilogy that is one part about vocation and understanding your place in the world and the identity that you have in relation to other people. The second story is about Jungian psychology and the archetypes that we embody and the labels that help us understand ourselves. And the third is about magic. <laughs> um, and they weave like each of these books weaves itself with characters from the others. And you see different parts of, of the story over told over the whole whole. But um, I was watching the show and being like, oh my gosh, this has so much overlap with the at least thematically with these stories of Robertson Davies. So if you haven't read any Robertson Davies, start with the Deptford trilogy. Um, the, the first book is called Fit Business, um, and if you can get through that book, it will propel you into the next two, which are the Manticore and Wonder uh, World of Wonders, uh, or yeah, the World of Wonders. Which um, they're, they're they're remarkable books. They they're yeah, everyone should read them. That so that's my, my postlude for today. It's beautiful, and I'm excited to check those out. That sounds really, really interesting. No, they're just perfect summer reading. They're not going to ask a lot of you, and and they're quick. They'll move. They're long, but they're quick.
0: Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Friends, if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our Friends of the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Golden Brick. Thanks, Adam. Take
1: okay. that.